Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Anything less than great sounding today is due to me being a bit blocked up and in my closet again, missing my studio booking as I isolate and wait for my latest COVID test results. Back to Audio-Technica, though. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Lindy Jacob was born into the exclusive Brethren in Auckland, New Zealand, and was told that there was no longer a place for her there in 2008. Her family cut off all communication with her and she was forced to start a new life at the age of 20, without any of the people she knew and loved. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also mentions child sexual abuse and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. The Plymouth Brethren movement was conceived in Dublin, primarily led by a former Church of Ireland clergyman named John Nelson Darby. After a period of bed rest following a fall from his horse, Darby came to believe that the world was becoming evil and that the only way to get right with God was to separate not only from sinful secular society, but from corrupted institutionalised forms of church. He left the Anglican Church and formed his offshoot in the late 1820s with a man named Benjamin Wills Newton. According to the current Plymouth Brethren Christian Church website, 
Darby wanted to focus on the individual's direct relationship with God and the emphasis this placed on personal responsibility. According to the BBC, he felt that mainstream churches had prioritised unity through their dealings with the secular world, and that this was false unity and a betrayal of Jesus. The movement's first assembly was held in Plymouth, England in 1831, and hence they became referred to as the Plymouth Brethren. Darby and Newton preached of the coming secret rapture, which was a novel concept at the time, and of living like the early Christians before they had been corrupted by mainstream churches. Followers weren't to be tainted by the outside world, and could be kicked out by fellow members if they were judged to have become impure by dealings with non-followers. According to Australian journalist Michael Bachelard, it was John Nelson Darby who originally took the doctrine of the rapture to the USA, where it became a mainstay of a multitude of evangelical preachers. As the movement spread, Darby's words were circulated in printed form, transcribed from his sermons and his own copious writings. In the mid-1840s, the movement split into two, the Open Brethren under Benjamin Wills Newton and the Exclusive Brethren remaining under Darby. The Open Brethren had more dealings with other Christians, whereas the Exclusive Brethren became even more, well, exclusive. They didn't go by any particular name themselves for many years, but in recent decades adopted the Exclusive Brethren name that they had become known by. They've also been referred to as the Closed Brethren and the Darbyites. There are many different types of brethren to this day, so to be clear, when I use the brethren shorthand in this episode, I'm just referring to the exclusive brethren. Darby issued a pamphlet around 1853 called Separation from Evil, God's Principle of Unity, which began, quote, The need of union is felt now by every right-minded Christian. The power of evil is felt by all. Its pressure comes too near home, its rapid and gigantic strides are too evident and affect too nearly the particular feelings which characterise distinctively every class of Christians to allow them to be blind to it, however little they may appreciate its true bearing and character. Further splits happened over the next few decades, and you can read more about these in Michael Bachelard's 2008 book, Behind the Exclusive Brethren. In 1881, Darby compiled the Little Flock hymn book, which remains the hymn book used extensively by members today. John Nelson Darby continued to lead the Exclusive Brethren until his death in 1882 at the age of 81. There's no chosen successor as such in the organisation, and it's believed that the mantle is passed on in some mysterious way to land with the rightful new leader. What this means in practice is the potential for a fair bit of jostling for power when a previous leader passes away. Another split followed as Frederick Raven took over from Derby, and after Raven's death in 1903, there was some uncertainty until James Taylor Sr. became leader in 1910. Upon his own death in 1953, a struggle for power again ensued, but by 1959, Taylor's son, James Taylor Jr., had taken the mantle. Some believe it was under J.T. Jr. that things really started to go awry. (laughs) 
as what became known in the exclusive brethren as the elect vessel, James Taylor Jr. tightened the reins further over his followers and introduced stricter rules around interactions with non-members, including that exclusive brethren could no longer eat with, be friends with, or work with them. Known as the eating matter, this hardline stance broke up long-term marriages and resulted in an uptick in departures, excommunications, and members being withdrawn from. In the exclusive brethren, being withdrawn from is the term used for what you might know from other groups as shunning. Those who leave or are excommunicated are not to be contacted or responded to by those who remain, even their own parents or children. Former member Lindy Jacob told me a little more about this practice. They radically elevate your relationship with the group and the leader as being more important than natural or familial ties. And then that is not only taught as a theology and a principle, but it's very rigidly enforced. Um, So in other words, if someone comes to it that they can't believe everything about the brethren, then they're excommunicated and um, an almost total separation occurs between whether it's husband and wife, parent and child, um, you know, no matter how close that relationship has been, um, arguably there's not much closer than maybe a marital relationship or a parent and child relationship, but um, the, cu- the current members are taught to reject that person as, um, as a salvific matter, really, like it's, it's a matter of their own salvation. It's if you allow this person in your life, you your soul will be contaminated and your standing before God will be you know, and under threat. Also among JT Jr.'s total 390 directives over the intervening years were some that governed the dress of followers. Women could no longer cut their hair and had to wear headscarves. Men could not wear ties and had to be clean-shaven and keep their hair short. Followers were also barred from owning pets, and many pet owners had their animal companions put to sleep as a result of this directive. They were to marry young, were not to celebrate Christmas or Easter, could no longer attend university, and could not live on the same land as their livestock. The only safe places were considered to be homes and exclusive brethren meeting places. In Michael Bachelard's book, he wrote of James Taylor Jr., quote, Under his regime, families were always under the threat of being excommunicated or withdrawn from for some infraction or another. This carried with it the threat for individuals of being removed from their families, their belief systems and their hope of salvation instantly and irrevocably. The author wrote of sexual assault allegations against JT Jr. from more than one follower, and there are transcripts from meetings in which the elect vessel called followers a stinking bum and a son of a bitch and seemed to become increasingly drunk. He was documented at other meetings making vulgar comments about Adam seeing Eve for the first time and getting handsy with the women in attendance. At a German meeting in June 1970, James Taylor Jr. said, You sisters, I know you are kind of dumb. You do not know much, you sisters. All you know is you can rule your husband sometimes. Yes, that is what you know. Don't do it too long, though, because the plumber gets the hammer and hits her over the head. This is the truth, you know, and the plumber will show you how. 
this is very good ministry, I think, because I enjoy this ministry and I will beat every sister, I will beat her every time. End quote. Prior to JT Jr.'s leadership, alcohol wasn't a big part of Brethren life. But as his power increased, he drank freely in meetings and insisted liquor was a creature of God and nothing to be refused. He was widely understood to suffer from alcoholism. Since his time, reliance on alcohol became common amongst the leadership and membership. Former member Lindy Jacob told me many people are surprised to learn about the prevalence of alcohol abuse in the exclusive brethren. That's something that sometimes people say to me, who don't know the bread and they're shocked to find out how much they drink. Um, or when I f- first left, I would, if I poured a drink, I would pour it, it was very standard to pour it 50% whiskey, 50%, you know, water or whatever else, like really high quantities, and people would say, what are you doing? Um, and that it was how we drank in there. Yet another split occurred in 1970, when James Taylor Jr. was accused of immoral conduct after being found in bed with a married female follower that July. He denied the allegations, though there were multiple witnesses. JT Jr.'s story was that he had set the whole thing up as a test to see who was really true to him. Around 8,000 members left following what became known as the Aberdeen Incident and James Taylor Jr. died just three months later from complications relating to his alcohol consumption. The Aberdeen incident created the biggest split the movement had faced, as a pretty sensational scandal. Those who bought James Taylor Jr.'s version of events and stayed committed were mostly further from Scotland, where the incident had occurred, and this shifted the balance of the exclusive brethren's following towards the Southern Hemisphere, namely to Australia and New Zealand. To this day, those in the Exclusive Brethren are expected to accept that JT Jr. was above reproach and did nothing wrong, and many see the lack of admission around his indiscretions as symptomatic of the wider problems within the organisation. The New York Times write-up of his death included the following. Mr Taylor was denounced in Parliament in 1964 and by angry British crowds who charged that his preaching caused, among other events, four suicides, several broken marriages and untold misery to many Christians who belong to the Brethren. After JT Jr.'s death, James Harvey Symington took over as leader and immediately excommunicated anyone in leadership who might have threatened his claim. James or Jim Symington was from North Dakota, an American like the Taylors. He also suffered from alcoholism. Under Symington, exclusive Brethren members could no longer even share sewerage lines with non-followers and must live in freestanding houses so as not to share any walls with non-members. Young people could now only complete up to Year 10 in school and millions of dollars in donations were flowing into the elect vessel from assemblies around the world. When Jim Symington died in 1987, with the membership's shift in geographical demographics, it became time for an Australian leader, and John Hales was that man. John Hales had been ousted from the exclusive Brethren no less than three times, but in hindsight the circumstances were put down to unfair accusations. Michael Bachelard wrote that John Hales was particularly interested in finances, having trained as an accountant, and that he put some focus on directing members to leave substantial bequests to the Brethren from their estates, as well as making sure any relatives who had left the movement got little to nothing. 
he encouraged followers to borrow money from each other rather than external financial institutions and encouraged new business endeavours. John Hales built the first Brethren-only high school in 1992 in Meadowbank in Sydney's northwest, which became the first of many around the world. Today, the Brethren-associated One School Global Network claims to be, quote, one of the largest progressive independent school networks in the world, with over 100 schools in 21 countries. Upon his death in 2002, John's third son Bruce took on the mantle, without so much struggle as previous changes in leadership had prompted. Bruce Hales remains the elect vessel or man of God today. The current website of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church says that they have 300 assemblies across 18 countries and states, quote, We are a community of over 50,000 members across Australia, New Zealand, Europe, the Americas, including the Caribbean, and the UK. On the FAQ page under How Can I Become a Member, it says, Our evangelical work is intended to lead people to Christ for the salvation of their souls for now and eternity. Any that are prepared to be committed to our beliefs and way of life may choose to join our church. From everything I've read and heard, it seems to be exceedingly rare for new members to come from anywhere other than being born to current members. The website also states, Our beliefs are founded on the Holy Bible, the text common to all Christian churches. This was formally recognised in the 1926 United States Census of Religious Bodies. Quote, the body classified as Plymouth Brethren disclaim any designation whatever save those that the scriptures apply to all believers as Christians. To accept any specific title would imply that they are a sect which they deny, sects or divisions being condemned in 1 Corinthians 1 v 10 to 15. For a brief period not long after becoming leader, Bruce Hales undertook a review of past excommunications and allowed members to reach out to those they had withdrawn from to invite them back into the Brethren. Many were hesitant to rejoin the strict way of life after years out, though they welcomed the contact from their estranged loved ones. But it didn't last because the separation doctrine was still in place, so in many ways did more harm than good in raising people's hopes of a more open dialogue between those in and those out. A former member who was contacted during the review said for a study by academic Jill Mitten it was, quote, a farce, brethren seeking forgiveness for the appalling treatment of another human being. Once the process had been completed, there was no contact whatsoever. One aspect that has eased up under Bruce Hales is the use of technology. Under previous elect vessels, radio and television were banned, fax machines were not to be used, and computers and mobile phones were all a pipeline to filth. These days computers are commonplace, but I'm told they are all to be bought or hired through an exclusive Brethren-owned and run global company that restricts what can be accessed over the internet and has the ability to dial into any member's machine remotely. In spite of previously stating that mobile phones were the tool of the devil, Bruce Hales now allows followers to use these as well, so long as they are also hired from and managed by this Brethren organisation. Michael Bachelard wrote, quote, The focus of Bruce Hales's administration has shifted from the religious to the worldly concerns of business and politics. 
business success, not theological obscurantism, is now sufficient to promote a brethren man to the front ranks of the assembly. I spoke with Michael Bachelard for this episode, and his book Behind the Exclusive Brethren is well worth a read if you're interested in the subject. You'll find a link in the show notes. I asked him what he felt were the key takeaways from his investigations into the group that the rest of society should be aware of. Look, it's in some senses it's 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 not a threatening group uh, in the sense that it doesn't recruit from outside. Uh, it, really, you have to be born into it. Um, but if you are born into it, it's incredibly high pressure. Uh, it's quite. Um, uh, unpleasant in terms of uh, the the restrictions on your freedoms. For example, um, you are very tightly controlled in in your life and various as- basically every aspect of your life, from your business to your personal life to your family life, who you have over for dinner, who you associate with, um, how you run your business uh, is incredibly tightly controlled uh, by central. Uh, the central leader, a man called Bruce Hales, who's a, a Sydney-based furniture, uh, office furniture mogul, I suppose you'd call him, uh, massive business uh, interests in, in office furniture and that kind of thing, um, and uh, every virtually every aspect of your life is surveilled, from your use of computers and mobile phones, uh, where your children go to school, um, how they live their lives and, and their social lives and what they're allowed to wear and, and so on and so forth. So it's an incredibly high-demand organisation. Uh, I've said in my book that if you are prepared to toe the line and do what you're told, it can be a little bit like a kind of 1950s village kind of setup, very traditional, traditional families and so on. And I think that certainly it's the case for some people that they can have a a reasonable life in there, but if you transgress in any way or if you uh, are kicking against the traces, if you don't believe that the man of God, as they call him, Bruce Hales, is in fact uh, the Paul of our day, the sort of the emissary of God on earth, um, if you question the teachings, uh, life can get very unpleasant indeed. And um, the punishments range from um, ostracization, basically, what they call shutting up, where you are not allowed to see anyone, including your own family. You're not allowed to go to the services. You have your social life's entirely cut off, and you're you're essentially sent to Coventry by the group, um, through to with, withdrawal. They call it withdrawing from uh, or excommunication, where you really lose access to all of your family. Um, I know a man who has not seen his children since 1983, uh, after he was withdrawn from. Um, And uh, they will try every trick they can to get your business away from you um, and and keep you from all of your social connections and all of the people you've grown up with. And, of course, they're the only people you've grown up with, the only people you know, because uh, you've been so sequestered until that point. So... People find that incredibly difficult to deal with. Lindy Jacob and her family had had an experience of being shut up. Her young child had just woken up from a nap when she was retelling this story, so you may hear a few baby noises. My sister, at one stage, um, tried to elope to to marry a young man who the church had forbidden them from marrying, um, and. 
I mean, they were 20 and didn't really think it through, I don't think, very well, but they, they couldn't get married because they were um, under age without parental consent. And so they kind of had to come back home to their respective houses each. But both of our families were shut up. So the brethren have this disciplinary system that the first stage is you become shut up, which kind of means closed up rather than shutting your mouth up. But it's the same thing, essentially. Um, And often the entire household is shut up with the sinner, sort of like Leviticus-type leper kind kind of treatment in a way. Um, the whole household is seen as contaminated, not just the person. Um, it's not always practiced, but it, it definitely used to be more commonly the thing. So our whole household was shut up for three or so months. And that was, yeah, that was quite significant. It was the first time I'd been shut up um, or experienced that in our family. And it was horrible because, yeah, you go from this incredibly busy and meshed life that's deeply involved with other exclusive brethren every day to, um, you know, my siblings, my little siblings were going to the exclusive brethren school, but they were not allowed to eat or socialise with the other kids. Um, so they had to sit separately and and were shunned, even though it was nothing to do with them. They found it very, very traumatic. Um, I was going to work in an exclusive brethren workplace and, and I too couldn't eat with or socialise with any of the others um, and yeah same for the all of my other family members and so when you've been used to that is your only social environment you, you do not have the option of going on Facebook and chatting to other friends or you can't email or you know or phone call it's not just it's, it's been amusing all of us former members COVID-19 isolation and you know reports of concern about mental health and and all of us former members just sit here going, that's nothing compared to being shut up. Because you can Zoom and phone call people and wave at people across the street. And whereas when you're shut up, all of your social, your entire social world comes grinding to a halt. Um, and that, it's just utterly brutal. It's, it's definitely psychological abuse. Some months after Lindy and her family were shut up, Bruce Hales decided it was okay after all for her sister and the young man to marry. The process of being shut up can last for many months, depending on the infraction and the view of the church elders as to whether you've paid your dues and are appropriately repentant. Lindy knows of people who've been shut up for over two years. The difficulties the rest of us have faced with recent pandemic lockdowns are a really interesting comparison, which, as Lindy says, have nothing on this punishment. She understands that her father is currently shut up and has been since February 2020. Bill Raderkop reported for the Winnipeg Free Press in 2014 that Bruce D. Hales lives in a $5 million mansion, owns a private jet and Forbes magazine lists him as the fourth richest man in Australia. For his article about the exclusive Brethren community in Manitoba, the journalist spoke to around a dozen former members, all of whom requested anonymity. He wrote, They admit to being afraid of the Brethren. Ex-members who speak out against the exclusive Brethren are designated as opposers, and although they are usually out of contact with their friends and family anyway, 
Being given the label can extinguish even limited interactions and any hope of this changing one day. Lindy Jacob was born into the exclusive Brethren in Auckland, New Zealand, and was cast out in 2008 at the age of 20. She'd never spoken out about her experiences until this last year. She knew that her family and those within the Brethren already saw her as an opposer, though she'd not spoken out after leaving for over a decade to try to show that this wasn't so. It hadn't made a bit of difference, and Lindy has had hardly any contact with her family apart from one brother after he left, which was just over a year ago. So I have always tried to communicate with my family. Um, I decided early on that the separation would not be from my side and that I would do what I could to try and show them that I still had desire for connection um, and for reconciliation ultimately is my ultimate hope. So, but yeah, that's been a bit of trial and error. Like I, you know, in the first year, I remember that I'd sent a box of presents to them. So I think it was birthday presents and a few things like that. And that was returned to me unopened with, you know, a note saying, don't send us anything, which was really hard at the time. Um, but in retrospect, it, you know, it, it would have been difficult to sustain because it's difficult to buy presents for people who you no longer know. <laughs> um, but, yes, yeah, since then I settled in, probably in the first few years, I settled into a rhythm that I felt was sustainable, which is I send each of my siblings and parents and grandparents um, a card on their birthday and I send an annual letter with photographs and more of an update from our year. So that's still quite a bit of contact over a year, for me anyway, you know, it's always someone's birthday or something happening. Um, but over the last 11, 12 years, um, yeah, there has been next to no um, acknowledgement of receipt of those things. Um, there was never any acknowledgement from my siblings including this brother who came out. Um, but he did contact me a couple of years before he, he left. But it was very limited contact still. He was, yeah, it was extremely limited and guarded. Um, yeah, and my parents have responded over the years, but again, it's very limited and very vitriolic and difficult. Lindy's parents were born into the exclusive Brethren, and her grandparents were born into fairly closed parts of the Brethren before them. As you've already heard, things evolved and became more strict over time. She doesn't know a great deal about her family history in terms of how they originally became involved, because it's not something that was spoken about much. Most of what she knows about the history of the exclusive Brethren itself, she learned after leaving. In her experience, children were not encouraged to ask too many questions. I left when I was 20, so a lot of my recollections are in, I guess, terms of how me as a child or a teenager viewed it. Um, but yeah, people would just disappear. You know, I was eight and I had an auntie who I was very close to who came around to our house on an almost daily basis to help my mother with the children. And when I was eight, she just completely disappeared. And as an eight-year-old, I don't recall ever hearing an explanation for where she'd gone um, other than, yeah, a vague concept that she had done something wrong and she had to go. 
In terms of the ideas behind the doctrine of separation from evil, Lindy told me a bit more about her understanding of it. That's the question. What is what is this evil that they want to separate from? And it's that's quite an interesting and complex question because definitely with Darby and historically there was a desire to separate from moral evil and corruption. Um, Darby considered that the whole world essentially was, um, yeah, fallen and corrupt and almost irredeemable, not quite irredeemable because he was an evangelist, but he, he had a strong belief that it was all corrupted and that, I guess, humanity's greatest calling was to be pure and holy um, and that that purity and holiness did not only come as a gift from God, like most Christian traditions believe, but that it must be maintained by any in, in any individual's um, personal choices and lifestyle. Um, and so he, yeah, he kind of brought in this, this very strong idea that um, inner purity and and avoid being contaminated with evil it, individuals lives needed to be they needed to be making a lot of choices to keep themselves separate um, and eventually that merged into an ecclesial separation um, where for Darby and those who followed him it was very important that the brethren movement itself was to remain uh, was to be pure, that that was their highest goal um, and that that was, again, not something that was necessarily just a divine gift from on high, but it had to be physically maintained and it was in constant threat from outsiders. Uh, so that's kind of the theological underpinnings of it. But today, to be honest, when you ask yourself the question, when you look at the brethren, what is the evil they're separating from? Yes, there are elements of um, what they would call moral contamination, um, you know, sexual immorality and, you know, some of those kind of just general conservative Christian, you know, um, touch points. Um, but there's also, for the brethren, I think they they would never own this, but I think they have come to use the phrase merely as a method of instilling control in their adherence. Um, you know, for example, someone like myself, I am a Christian. Um, so you might ask then, and in many ways, there's a whole bunch of my lifestyle that would be not too different from exclusive brethren lifestyle. So it's a question I ask myself, why do the exclusive brethren separate from me? Um, why I've you know, when you read autobiographies and stuff or hear stories of people, there's stories of, you know, an elderly parent who was not a moral or wicked person, but they didn't want to be part of the exclusive brethren. And yet family members could no longer deliver them a meal or visit them. And you think, what is the evil that they're separating from here? Um, there's no real obvious... Um, moral or ethical issue so to my reading then it has become a tool used to maintain uniformity 
The exclusive brethren position would likely be that the person who has rejected their movement is by definition a sinner, as they have chosen to move away from the correct path, and so therefore the sin is the source of the evil that those who remain must steer clear of. The psychological impact of this separation on families who can no longer express their love for each other is profound. Lindy told me about her personal experience of seeing one of her siblings in the street one day after leaving. When I left was the last time I'd seen my siblings, and this was now a number of years afterwards. And so this sibling in particular had turned from being a child into a young adult. And I, so, their, you know, their face was different. It's the same, but different, you know. Um, and you have to remember as well, I haven't been seeing photographs. So you're not getting communication like that. Um, no photographs had been sent in that period. Um, and, yeah, I had a chance encounter on the street. I stepped out of a cafe and right there, right in front of me, was this sibling and this parent. And I completely fell apart. It was extremely distressing. But I ran to them. I ran to my parent and my sibling and I threw my arms around them and I was just sobbing um, and I dropped I had bags and I dropped them right there in the street and and I was just sobbing and trying to embrace them and it was extremely difficult to describe it was you know like this huge dam is just bursting inside of you of, of all this grief and and I was holding my sibling's face in my hands and just saying you know I, I love you, I love you, I love you. Um, and But my parent grabbed me and pulled me off, my sibling, and um, and just said, and was saying with, you know, a lot of emotion and fear and anger, was saying, get away from us, you're an opposer, you're an opposer, get away from us. And dragged my sibling, who was crying as well, and, you know, scurried, marched away, and I just collapsed on the on the ground and was just absolutely sobbing and in a wreck. My husband was luckily with me and he was picking up my bags and, you know, people in the street are just looking at us like, what the heck is happening? Um, so that was, that was an example of how separation from evil functions at a practical level. Um, it's just, yeah, profoundly traumatic and incredibly strong. Like People ask me, how can parents do this to their kids? And I don't have a good answer um, other than, yeah, that's, that's the power that some of these organisations can have. According to the PBCC website, quote, any breakdown of relationships within a family is always tragic and every effort is expended to prevent this occurring or to try and bring in reconciliation if it does. I asked Lindy if she could tell me about a typical week for her when she was a member. I guess in my last few years before I left, I'll go with kind of that. It would have been, yeah, going to work five days a week. Um, they do, yeah, really value working in their businesses. It's sort of one of the only outlets that they've got, I guess, because you're not 
allowed hobbies and you're not allowed higher education and all that kind of thing. So business is one of the only things you can really do. So yeah, I did have work five days a week, um, but we had church every single night. So at 7.30, you know, so you'd come home from work, have a little bit of time to kind of turn around and change and shower and eat your dinner, and then you would be heading out the door to a service. And they were every single night, and they were usually around about an hour all up. Um, That had a hymn at either end of the service, and it was sort of on a roster system. There were slightly different things that they did at each meeting during the week and the evenings. Like sometimes it was more conversational style among the men, and other times it was um, sermons being given and that sort of thing. Um, at least once a week, it was on a roster system where you would go to services in other towns nearby within a couple of hours, but still sometimes even an hour away. So that was quite a big night. That you know you would you would be hopping in your car and driving an hour off to have a service in the in the next town up. Um, and then heading back. And children on the whole were expected to go to these night meetings. That was another thing. Now as a new mother, I look back and I think, how did they do it? Because I would remember toddlers and babies and children of all ages being at these evening meetings. And I think back to that now and I think, how did they do it? It's terrible. (laughs) Not to mention exhausting for the children. And school teachers have told me, yeah, you know, the children are often tired at school and they've been out the night before. And um, yeah, and then Saturdays, we the, the only change there was that the service was in the morning, not in the evening. But again, it was often in a neighbouring town, so it would often wipe out the whole morning. Um, and then Sunday, the first church service was at 6am in the morning. Um, and that was Again, you know, all your kids, all, you know, I was, I was the third of six kids and I look back now and I think, how did my parents from right, a young age right down to the baby, babies, you know, 6am, you'd all be out the door, all dressed, headscarf on, all that stuff and, and going to the service and then there would be another one, a longer one at 10am and then there'd be one at 2.15 and one at 4.30 and in between that, you were all rostered on to go out for a meal. You'd go out for your lunchtime meal, and then once every three or four weeks, you would be hosting that. And so you'd usually be hosting between 20 and 40 people for a meal. So it was a hugely busy day for, particularly for the woman, I think, you know, with having to get the family to all of those things um, and to provide the meal and that kind of thing. So... Yeah, a busy, a busy life, and then the men were encouraged, very strongly encouraged, to work very hard. So, a lot of them would pull quite long hours and have to be going back into work on Saturday and that kind of thing, as well. So yeah, there wasn't actually any time to have hobbies, or anything. Not that they were allowed. Exclusive brethren members don't go on vacation, and when they travel for special meetings or by special approval. They stay in other members' homes and never in hotels. They don't dine in restaurants, go to the cinema, or to art galleries. Even friendships with other members within the exclusive brethren have limitations. A former member told researcher Jill Mitten in 2013, quote, Whenever we wanted to have visitors for the weekend from another locality, we had to come up with some work excuse for them to come and help us. 
otherwise it was considered to be a special friendship, and they would not have been allowed to come. We also had to ask for permission to have them visit along with providing the reason why they were coming. Lindy told me about her impressions of Bruce Hales, whom she'd been in a room with on a number of occasions. I don't know if this was children's talk or adults believed it too, but like we were taught he had such control of his mind he could sleep standing up um, and that he could read the thoughts of your mind, like a bit like Jesus, that, you know, he had this hard-out spiritual discernment um, and could tell exactly what's going on for you, that he could recall every single person's name who he'd ever met, um, a whole lot of things like that. And just above all, he was definitely... Yeah, just definitely deified. Like, it was believed that um, he could, um, he had the latest revelation from God. So a bit, I understand it's a bit similar to the Catholics with the Pope. Like, they don't, they don't believe that Bruce Hales is fallible. Um, They think that, you know, every judgment he makes has come straight from on high. And so it can't be wrong. Um... So all of this to say that when you head in to meet him, you're really expecting something special, I guess. When Lindy first saw Bruce Hales, it was in a meeting hall where thousands of people were waiting to hear him speak. He entered the room last, and everybody stood in what she described as a kind of reverence as he came in. In spite of her anticipation, Lindy found herself underwhelmed by the man of God. It was like oh my goodness, you're just a fat old man. Like, there's nothing to you. Oh, I can't see anything special about you. You're red in the face like someone who likes alcohol too much. You're, you know, got a, you look unhealthy and overweight. Um, you don't have a halo shining on you. Many people may have made the mistake that I had made in thinking the exclusive brethren separation doctrine and conservative dress might have been related to living a more modest lifestyle overall. And Lindy told me this is not the case. I remember not long before I left, there was a fundraising event for the brethren schools, but only to put on for other brethren because they wouldn't put something on for outsiders. Um, And it was... You know, like the school kids did a play and did um, did a little play and sung some songs and all that sort of thing. And we had, um, like, blue label whiskey and alcohol and um, eye fillet steak and, like, really top-notch food served. And we were told it's because Bruce, Bruce Houses said that the, schools, that the school events should be like this because we're the king's people. I understand that historically it was, that they were more aesthetic, but... It's completely swung the other way now. And I think now, under Bruce Howes, they have turned into a global business. And money is sort of second to none, actually, in in terms of what drives this system. A number of these businesses are hugely successful. In August 2020, the UK government released documents around its pandemic contract that showed it had awarded a £239.6 million contract to Unispace Global Health on the 21st of April for a month-long contract supplying PPE for healthcare workers in the form of coveralls. Separate contracts of £113.95 million for face masks 
and £103.7 million for gloves were awarded shortly afterwards. The Unispace website features Charles Hales and Gareth Hales, sons of Bruce Hales, as co-founders and board advisors. There was no open call for suppliers. Quote, Justification for the choice of the negotiation procedure without prior publication of a call for competition in accordance with Article 32, extreme urgency brought about by events unforeseeable for the contracting authority and in accordance with the strict conditions stated in the directive. The Byline Times reported that they had, quote, uncovered that roughly a dozen companies with links to the exclusive Brethren had been awarded government coronavirus contracts worth up to £300 million. These new £350 million contracts for Unispace Global Health takes the total up to well over half a billion, end quote. For Brethren men, there is generally total employment. Wages are high, even for unmarried women with low-level administrative jobs. In their communities, homelessness isn't an issue and the elderly are taken care of. Poverty isn't a part of life in the exclusive brethren. Some might argue that this is a better system than capitalism, where choices are still limited and the majority of the population is trapped into working jobs that mostly line the pockets of those at the top. But that argument would rest on the equality of women being expendable, mandated limits on human potential being acceptable, and in terms of workers' rights, it's worth noting that the Brethren have successfully argued for the right to exempt their businesses from union laws on religious objection grounds in Australia. It could also be interpreted that anyone who doesn't fit the mould, say, for example, someone who can't suppress their non-heteronormative sexuality, or who has a mental health condition that precludes them from contributing constructively and towing the line, is liable to be thrown out of the movement and have all of these things taken from them. Perhaps it's easy to maintain such levels of affluence if you can toss out those who present a challenge to them and leave the outside world to pick up the pieces. I asked Lindy about her attitude to outsiders when she was a member of the Exclusive Brethren. Definitely that we were superior to them. That that was not necessarily explicitly taught, but it was undoubtedly a culture in the Exclusive Brethren that that I guess I guess exclusivity breeds that, right? You you it breeds a um yeah, a sense that you're you're better than the outsiders that and plus because it's combined with this concept that we were the only ones with the true light. And so the same thing for um, Christians, our view of outside Christians. It's like, well, they might mean well and be kind of okay people, but that they're, they're deluded and they don't have the light that we have. Former member Bruce Suggett said, quote, I thought I was untouchable. I always thought the Brethren were untouchable people. No one can touch us because we're going to heaven. Everyone else is going to hell. We are a chosen race of kingly priests and we are the best people. We are the only saved ones. Some outsiders, like myself, might best know the exclusive brethren through their style of dress, particularly that of the women. Though sometimes referred to in the derogatory as hanky heads, a ribbon or headband is allowed to be worn these days instead of a headscarf by women outside of the home, 
though a headscarf must always be worn to services. Lindy righted my impression of this mostly being about modesty. So a lot of them don't really care for or value um, things like modesty or, you know, asceticism with their clothing. They, um, so a lot of them push it. Like I used to laugh, you know, we didn't used to be allowed jewellery, but the woman would wear extremely expensive watches that were dripping with gold and jewellery. Or we had to wear headscarves at night, at, at, to the services um, and you may have seen them, particularly Australians were known for it because they'd wear huge um, feather trappings, basically straight out of the races. Um, you know, like big, some quite big feather and bejeweled kind of hair attachments that they would clip onto the side of their headscarves. Um, that were every bit as as, you know, look at me as some earrings. <laughs> yeah, so people didn't care for the spirit of what was, I guess, originally behind those rules. Um, and same with, same with, you know, a skirt below the knee and all that sort of thing. It was meant to be there for modesty, but a lot of them, particularly even more, I think it's got increasingly so in the last 10 years, when I see them, have got, like, yeah, very tight clothing, um, very expensive clothing. Um, yeah, like my friend in High Street commented, they buy very expensive stuff. Lindy said she understood this in some ways because women in the Brethren are very limited in how they can express any kind of individuality. As she mentioned, they don't have any hobbies, their job options are limited, and usually after they marry, they're expected to restrict themselves to homemaking and child rearing. In the daily services, they aren't even allowed to speak. Yes, that's right. Your women are forbidden from talking, um, which is again a throwback to they, on the whole, have quite a literal interpretation of scripture. And they've actually got very low biblical knowledge overall. For example, learning Greek and Hebrew and that sort of thing is not something that's encouraged or anything at all. So they, yeah, they do take a lot of scriptures totally at surface value rather than necessarily finding out original meanings of words and all that kind of thing. And so with that one they roll with, I think it's the, I don't know, verse in Timothy about, you know, let your woman be silent in the assemblies. So, yeah, women can give out, they can choose the hymns, give out a hymn, which means you have, a, you have one hymn book that's universal, global hymn book, closely guarded and copyrighted with just a bunch of old hymns in it and about 300 hymns and you can say, you know, number 23 and then everybody sings it. So that's what the women are allowed to do. On the PBCC website's FAQ page, under What is the position of women in the church, it says, quote, The role of women in the church is very important, including direct involvement in the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and selection and announcing each hymn at every gathering. The spiritual influence for good that the women sisters provide is highly valued amongst the congregation. It's, it's without a doubt a patriarchal organisation, um, and that's both kind of theologically as well as just how it practically plays out. The woman, you're very much you're there to serve and to raise children and keep the household, to to cook and to you know iron the clothing for all the services you have to go to and whatnot. 
And I think, you know, for my day anyway, the, I look back and I, I think, man, um, you know, my mother had six children and a husband and her ironing pile was huge and yet she was never allowed, you know, there's no, you have to do all of that with no TV to watch, no music to listen to, no podcast to listen to, incredibly boring, um, which is a modern complaint, I guess, because they didn't have those things in the past, but um yeah, so a very menial and servile life, I think. Michael Bachelard told me a bit about his impressions of the role of women in the exclusive brethren. Yes, they're very much second-class citizens, um, women, and uh, they, for, for everything from um, what, uh, what they're taught from youngsters about their role in society through to, to marriage, they're married quite young by today's standards, uh, very often marriages that are essentially arranged. Uh, there is a matchmaker or matchmakers in each country. Um, there is a limit to how much education you can get. That, that goes for the whole group. You, you don't go to university in general. Uh, some of them now do correspondence courses um, in subjects like accounting and so on, but they are very suspicious of the university lifestyle because they fear that it will lead young people astray. Uh, and once you're married and having children and, you know, having many children is encouraged, you really are tied by those family um, bonds into an organisation that regards you as a second-class citizen where your work, work life more or less ends once you're married. Um, uh, you may work for a family company, but, but that's about it. Uh, your participation in the religious life of the community is minimal. You You will call out what hymns are to be sung at the, at the Sunday service, but that's about it. Uh, and your involvement in business, decision-making, even political discussions around the dinner table and that kind of thing are, are discouraged because you're a woman. So it's a very limited life. Aside from getting permission around who you are to marry, according to a couple of sources, you're not supposed to marry outside of your own race. The use of contraception is not allowed, nor is abortion and homosexuality is expected to be repressed and overcome. For both genders, as Michael mentioned, education is limited. Interestingly, the About Us page of the One School Global website is quite focused on the digital modern world. Quote, With an innovative approach to learning, delivered in cutting-edge, technology-empowered physical and digital learning environments, One School Global is preparing life-ready students who learn how to learn. Under Our Vision, it says, Formerly, our vision referred to preparing career-ready students. We have intentionally changed this to focus on the development of life-ready students. Any school can prepare a student for a career. Arguably, few can truly prepare a student more holistically for life. Lindy and other former members refer to a phrase often used by leadership in the exclusive brethren, We'll do the thinking and you do the doing. Sometimes the phrase was prefaced with another. If you don't understand it, don't question it. I'm not certain if either is still in wide usage, but the general attitude seems fairly incompatible with setting up young people to learn how to learn. I think it's one of the greatest crimes of the exclusive brethren, actually, is that they completely restrict human potential. Um, I was, for example, when I was in there, you were still not allowed to do year 13, so I finished at year 12. 
and and that was because you were not supposed to be gaining university entrance level qualifications. Um, however, they apparently they have come under fire for that a bit, and they have brought in a limited amount of university education under quite strict circumstances, like it's um, got to be beneficial for the businesses. So, you know, management, accountancy, that kind of thing, because again, you still can only be employed by exclusive brethren. So you're not allowed to go and do uh, train to become a nurse or a teacher or a doctor or a, um, a pilot or, you know, there's a huge number of careers that you can't take and then you're not allowed to study on site. It's got to be distance, again, to avoid um, evil and contamination and all of that kind of thing. So it's still incredibly restricted and from what I gather, not commonly taken up. You know, if you're a kid, you're going to their schools. If you're not a kid um, and you're working, then you're, you can only be employed by brethren companies. So it's a very limited pool of career choice especially for women, it's pretty much administration roles in their companies that you can have. Um, and if you are a married woman, then your role changes completely to being um, a household manager and, you know, raise ch children and support the household and that kind of thing. And you, when I was in there anyway, you were actually not allowed to go back to work. Lindy had heard of a more recent exception to this standard. The women do a stack of voluntary work in the schools and in the last few years as well, Hales has rolled out global private grocery stores for exclusive brethren only. And they use their collective buying power to get stuff cheap. Then the brethren are all um, very strongly encouraged to purchase from these stores. Um, and current and former members tell me that they are no way cheaper. In fact, they're often quite high-end products and as expensive as normal stores and often more expensive. So it's, they're not getting a financial advantage by shopping there, but they're told, oh, the proceeds from this all go to fund our schools. That's what they're told, but no one really knows um, because a lot of those financial structures are, are private. Um, but what upset me, yeah, in the last year or two, I've been made aware that there are, that those stores are entirely run by women on voluntary time, they're not paid. And that makes me cross, <laughs> really cross. Um, it's just really unfair. Um, but of course, the women, I guess, on the whole, are keen to do it because it makes for a change from your ironing pile. Maybe the money from these endeavours is going to the schools, who knows? But the schools are getting a fair amount of money from other avenues as well. Michael Bachelard looked into government support of the Australian schools when he was researching behind the exclusive brethren. He told me a bit more about this, and here you'll hear him reference something Bruce Hale said to members in Sydney in 2006, quote, The whole principles of the world have to be scorned and disdained and just hated, really hated. We have to get a hatred, an utter hatred of the world. Unless you've come to a hatred of the world, you're likely to be sucked in by it and seduced by it. You must hate the world, every feature of the world, end quote. The Brethren say that this quote has been taken out of context, though it's difficult to know what kind of context would substantially change its interpretation. 
At a Sydney reading in January 2005, Bruce Hale said, See, it's whether I can pour scorn on the world, look at the world as an utter object of contempt as I go through the streets and the bookstalls and anywhere I go, and through the crowds, and I look at the world as an utter and absolute object of contempt, because it's already been judged. At a more recent meeting in 2015, Bruce Hale said, My intelligence prevents me from overemphasising anything, and furthermore, I'll have you know that the Lord prevents me from saying anything too extreme. So if you think I'm saying something extreme, think again, think again, and I'd say accept it. So in uh, the 1990s, until then, uh, their children had been in uh, ordinary public schools, but they'd been getting unhappier and unhappier with the kind of curriculum that was being taught there, particularly uh, in the English language and, and literature streams, uh, stuff, you know, the, the, the novels and so on that they objected to and poetry that was being read, um, that they decided then that they would sequester their own, their school system away. They've very successfully done that. And through both Labor and Liberal governments at state and federal level, they've managed to get uh, enormous, uh, enormously generous funding for those schools, uh, they get, uh, I think, look, it's been a while since I looked, but $10,000 per student uh, per year in some of their schools in government funding. Uh, and this is government money that is funding an organisation that whose leader recommends that its people feel an utter hatred for the world. It's an organisation that doesn't let any non-brethren children into their schools, that doesn't let those brethren children go any further than year 12 and into university, uh, whose curriculum is radically, um, uh, it's based on the, on the national curriculum or the state curriculums, but it's, uh, you know, there's a lot cut out, books that are censored and, uh, and uh, science curriculum that is, that is censored. Um, and, it's, and it's funded by the government. Um, they also do a very clever trick that you could only do in such a closed society which is to fund their school fees via donations from their family trusts. It's quite a complicated mechanism, but what it means essentially is that you're paying your school fees from pre-tax money, uh, uh, which is a, a luxury that no other Australian sending their child to private schools uh, is, is allowed under the tax law to do, but somehow they get away with it. I took a quick look at the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child, which Australia ratified in December 1990. According to Article 28, at 1C, signatories shall make higher education accessible to all on the basis of capacity by every appropriate means. And at Article 29, 1, state parties agree that the education of the child shall be directed to a. the development of the child's personality, talents and mental and physical abilities to their fullest potential, and d the preparation of the child for responsible life in a free society in the spirit of understanding, peace, tolerance, equality of sexes and friendship among all peoples, ethnic, national and religious groups and persons of Indigenous origin. Former member Craig Hoyle told Radio New Zealand's Sonia Sly, We weren't allowed aspirations. I knew that I would grow up and go into the family business which was tyres. Eventually, my father would retire and I would take over that business and that would be my life. It was all planned out. 
In 2016, Sydney Morning Herald reporter Eric Bagshaw looked into New South Wales state funding of the 11-campus MET Brethren School and found that a total of 600 public schools received less funding per student than the MET school. Quote, In a statement, the New South Wales Department of Education could not explain why the school was receiving funding equivalent to that of some of the state's poorest public schools, despite having a donation base 500 times their value. This sounds like a high level of public money going to a school that can't be attended by members of the general public. The New South Wales Enrolment Policy document available on the One School Global website states, The policy emphasises the openness of the One School Global system in New South Wales to the children of all Plymouth Brethren Christian Church families. It continues, Priority in enrolment will be given to A, those children and families who are known and involved members of the local community the One School Global New South Wales campus serves, B, the children of other Christian families that have expressed a commitment to support the life of the school. As there's so much to say about the exclusive brethren, I'm going to wind up the first part of this episode here. But I'm putting out part two at the same time as part one, so that you can continue to listen at your leisure. In the second part, you'll hear about the exclusive brethren running into some trouble with UK charity regulations, the fighting fund that members contribute to which funds brethren court cases for various matters, what Michael Bachelard found out about their political lobbying efforts, and Lindy's leaving story. I hope you'll join me. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by myself and Hayley Gray. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Lindy Jacob for sharing her story with me and also to Michael Bachelard, whose book Behind the Exclusive Brethren is really worth a read. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia, via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association, via icsahome.com. 
If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. For sexual assault resources in Australia, visit 1800respect.org.au and in the USA, visit rainrain.org. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 